second presentation of uh, Dr. Shanklin on Other Power, Chin Buddhism, Levinas, and Lira. Well, I knew Mark would be a tough act to follow. I think we'd be that tough. Thank you all for uh, for the invitation. Wonderful to be here. You see the pedantry <laughs> that Mark talked about? It knocked the brain out of me before I wrote this paper. <laughs> so I'm not responsible for what it said. Uh, and uh, besides, I changed the name of it. Uh, it's called, now it's called Mother Power. So it's Other Power, but it has a an M in, in parentheses before. Uh, it feels very boring to actually read this, but I, I worked very hard to get it within the time limit, so I, I'll see how, it, see how it goes. I'll try to read it with a little flair. Plus, we've got a bunch of Shakespeare in it. I'd rather not do the Shakespeare totally by heart. So, um, I have no idea what I was going to talk about when I was invited to give uh, this, this talk. And boy, it turned out to be so much fun. And I hope I convey something of the, of the excitement I had uh, in working on this, uh, on this subject. So I've been, I, I just wrote a book on Emmanuel Levinas, who is the teacher of Jacques Derrida, which is his, uh, Professor Matsumoto, or Mr. Matsumoto, who is going to be speaking on other power. Uh, the other is, of course, one of the great uh, uh, concepts, if you will, not really a concept, a non-concept concept is Emmanuel Levinas, who was actually Derrida's teacher. He got all that other stuff wrong, actually. I did, but whatever. So Emmanuel Levinas, uh, uh, 1906 to 1995. Uh, and again, since part of what we want to do here is uh, the idea is to bring Shin Buddhism in relationship to contemporary philosophy. I guess 1995 is contemporary. Levinas uh, uh, is perhaps the most influential uh, philosopher of the 20th century on the subject of ethics. And what does he mean by ethics? Uh, I'll just give you a very shorthand definition. For Levinas, what ethics means is my inescapable responsibility for a unique and irreplaceable other. My inescapable responsibility for a unique and irreplaceable other. And Levinas wrote in the tradition of phenomenology. He was a student of Husserl and of Heidegger. And as I mentioned, the teacher of such well-known so-called quote-unquote postmodernist thinkers as Jacques Derrida, Luce Thierry-Garay. Uh, something uh, very traumatic happened to Levinas and to many others. That was the, the Holocaust to show off. Uh, he was alarmed by the apparent complicity of the most sophisticated philosophical speculations on the nature of being, that is Heidegger's, with the most extraordinary ethical turpitude and indifference. Uh, Heidegger was a Nazi. He actually had a lot to do with having uh, his own teacher, uh, Husserl's uh, position, removed. Not exactly filial piety, uh, one might say. So Levinas thought he had to rethink the relationship between philosophy and ethics. 
And what he argues, and this is the basic of his, basis of his thought, is that ethics must precede ontology, that's the Western philosophical science of being, ontology which is always in danger of betraying ethics, and in fact which always does betray ethics. Ontology always betrays ethics. That's Levinas' insight. And again, by ethics, Levinas means the face-to-face, concrete encounter, the kind of thing Mark was talking about, with another human being for whom I am personally and inescapably responsible. And I think Mark beautifully gave examples of that, of ethics embodied and in action. Now, the spiritual and philosophical sources of Levinas' work uh, were <clears throat> what he calls the Bible and the Greeks. But if the Bible and the Greeks constitute the parameters of my field of reference and of my inspiration, then aren't I in danger, especially in today's global world, of reinstating the very metaphysical imperialism, the very allergy to the other that the work of Levinas attempts to resist? In 1975, Levinas insisted at a colloquium at Leiden, quote, there is not a single thing in a great spirituality which would be absent from another great spirituality. These are the words of, uh, especially after the Holocaust, is also an observant Jew. So in my remarks today, I'm going to make some connections between Levinas' notion of the other and other power in Shin Buddhism. And I'm going to suggest our reading of King Lear, Shakespeare's King Lear, which I hope many of you have, have experienced, and perhaps even recently, how that can help us see connections between Shin Buddhism and Levinas' work. Now, of course, I hesitate to speak about Shin Buddhism before an audience of experts, but comparative philosophy, of course, requires us to make fools of ourselves. <laughs> Since we often know much more about one of the terms of the comparison than the other, but of course, as your master suggests, given the fact that Shin Buddhism readily acknowledges that we are all foolish beings who uh, uh, mindlessly bump our heads into objects just before we're about to give uh, papers, Perhaps on this occasion of a conference about Shin Buddhism, you will be so kind as to please excuse my own foolishness. Now, with Shinran's uh, disciple, Renyo, according to uh, Hiroyuki Hitsuki, who was known for, quote, his single-minded concentration on the masses, and for whom Amida Buddha is a compassionate figure who cannot abandon the suffering that discriminated against the lowly women and children. His Buddha finds it impossible to refuse to save the suffering multitudes. And for a very famous scholar, Haiteso Uno, other power, quote, is the working of great compassion. Self-power, in contrast, manifests itself in unconscious, deep-rooted, egocentric impulses. Now, the practitioners of Mahayana Buddhism, including its Shin followers, do not rest content with the joys of attaining personal enlightenment. Otherwise, they would have been so nice to, to mark. The enlightened person must rather devote himself in the here and now to helping others attain well-being and enlightenment. In Mahayana and in Shin Buddhism, as in the work of Levinas, ethics is of primary concern. 
Now, the tone of ethical obligation in Buddhism and in the Torah Levinas is certainly different. Drawing on the example of prophetic witness in the Hebrew Bible, Levinas's philosophical work speaks of ethical obligation in terms of command. We are commanded to be good, as if by the demanding God of the Hebrews. Who is, however, and here we have a link with Buddhism, also described as compassionate, rahum, in Exodus 4.6, as well as demanding, you know, the various attributes of God. Rahum, compassion, is a very important one of these attributes. Now, letting us this thought might give the impression also of being dualistic, and I think if, you, if you're not familiar with it, you read it, you, at first you would, you would say that, from a Buddhist perspective, because letting us is fond of speaking, not fond, he insists on speaking, of the other human being, the other person, as absolutely other. But by this I mean, uh, I think he means, or I'm pretty sure he means, that that is an act act of violence to try to assimilate the other person into our own egos, or our own selfish ends. Placing itself in opposition to all systems of thought that see the self or ego as free and autonomous, letting us insist that the other is in my skin. The other is in my skin. Hardly dualistic. So now it's time to turn to King Lear, composed around 1605 to 1606. A play, by the way, that Levinas considered one of the first great books that he had ever encountered as a young man. So what, in what follows, I will offer a reading of the play that's inspired by Levinas and my far less knowledgeable but very sympathetic and even enthusiastic understanding of certain aspects of Buddhist thought. It sometimes seems to me, Levinas wrote, that all of philosophy is a meditation on Shakespeare. I would include Buddhist philosophy in that statement. Lear, to me, often reads like a meditation on Buddhist thought. Beginning with the play's title, and even the name of the main character, King Lear. Lear. Now, in the 16th century, the word Lear could mean empty, derived from the Middle English Lea, and the Old English Gelaet. Leer, of course, means empty in contemporary German. And the adjective Leer in Britain, even today, can mean having no burden or load. And this takes us to, let's think about that, to king emptiness, king nothing, king nothing. Takes us to the beginning of the play, in which Lear is about to disburden himself of the kingship. He tries to empty himself of the kingship, but the emptying keeps getting filled up by the attachments of the ego, at this point in the play, driven more by self-power, by GDP, than by other power, piety. So Lear's plan is, of course, he's going to divide the kingdom up into three parts, giving one to each of his daughters, but before he does so, he wishes to have tangible evidence of the love his daughters 
deal for him. He wants his act of giving to be reciprocated, and more than that, this study goes back to what Art talked about earlier. He wants his daughters to tell him how much they love him. It would have been much better if he'd been contented with silence, because, as Mark said, how do you express love? You express it through your action, not through, you know, I love you this much, this much, and this much. As if it could be measured. And so, we're at Cordelia, after the two horrible daughters tell me, oh, I love you this much, and this much, and exactly, and this way, this much, and, you know, you're, you're fantastic. Then he asked Cordelia, what can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? Speak! To which Cordelia responds, nothing, my lord. Nothing? Leo asks in astonishment. Then Cordelia, astonishment. Then Cordelia repeats herself, nothing. To which Lear, King Emptiness, King Nothing, responds in a line the significance of which reverberates far beyond the speaker's intention. How? Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Fill up that space. So what is Lear doing? He's stripping himself of his many trappings of power. His goal, however, is not enlightenment, not a deepening of compassion. He rather seeks in retirement to be free of the burden of kinship, to be free of his connection to others. I think it was the line, until we unburdened crawl towards death. Unburdened crawl. He wants to go to a retirement home, a gated retirement home with nice meals, and forget about the war in Iraq, forget about hunger, He's relinquishing his kingship, but he nevertheless wishes to shore up his sovereign ego with tangible expressions of love from his daughters. He wants to prop up his ego with the accoutrements of kingship without being burdened by the responsibilities that should go along with these accoutrements. Now, as the play proceeds, Lee's Lear becomes devastated by the ruthlessness with which his two daughters, Regan and Zonero, deprive him of his already significantly reduced group of royal retainers. You no longer need any of these, one of his evil daughters tell him. You no longer need them. And Lear responds with the famous words, Oh, reason not the need! Now, on the one hand, Shakespeare's speech makes it clear that our egos need props that assure us of our self-worth. But on the other hand, it's precisely our need for these props that once indulged armors us keeps us from feeling the kind of vulnerability that might lead to our experience of connection with others. And in the course of the play, Lear is increasingly stripped of all his props, of his ego, the props that have rendered him as a person uh, who, in the words of one of his daughters, Regan, has, quote, has ever but slenderly known himself. A victim of the cruelty of the Zorda Green and Donero, who refused to even shelter their, their father in, in a storm, an uh, absolute betrayal of filial piety, and just a simple human uh, uh, desire for and need for hospitality, Lear, stripped of his train of attendance, is forced out into a storm in the third act of the play. 
But it's here that Lear, for the first time in the play, perhaps for the first time in his life, allows himself to be guided by other power, by a deep compassion for others. We see on the heat and in the storm what Levinas would describe as a veritable eruption of ethics, of compassion. Lear is quote-unquote bareheaded without the prop of the imperial crown to which he is so attached, and he asks all those who are guilty to beg for grace, but he still ignorantly considers himself quote, a man more sinned against than sinning. Here's a guy who deprived his incredible daughter Cordelia of her rightful inheritance, and he says, I'm a man more sinned against a fool, truly, a fool. But then suddenly, as if he becomes seized by other power, Lear becomes aware of the suffering of others. My wits begin to turn, he remarks. In Levinas's terms, Lear is for the first time encountering the absolute otherness of others, to which he responds with responsibility, placing the other two others, first the fools and tenth in rapid succession above himself. He says to his loyal fool, they're out there on the heat, it's cold, it's, 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 it's a storm, it's uh, cold, it's windy, come on my boy, how dost my boy, aren't cold, I am cold myself, and then immediately pretend, where is this straw that hobbles my fellow, poor fool and knave? I have one part in my heart that's sorry for thee yet. From the depth of his own suffering, Lear is able to feel compassion for his fellow. And the three now move towards the hovel of their shelter for which Lear, vulnerable as he is to the terrors of the storm, is now so extremely grateful. Ken, always polite and respectful towards Lear and others, asks Lear to, quote, enter the hovel here. After all, he's a king. Lear, however, despite his physical discomfort, hesitates, realizing that contending with the storm leaves him no leisure to ponder on things that would hurt him more. That is his horrible situation. It's the way his daughters have, have, uh, have treated him. Then Lear decides, however, to enter the hovel before the others. A privilege, of course, to which he is former king has become accustomed. And he says, but I'll go in. And then he stops. He's about to go in before the others, and then he stops. Something truly extraordinary happens. But before we turn to this extraordinary event, I'd like to turn to a passage of Levinas in a book entitled Ethics and Infinity, which consists of a series of interviews with Levinas conducted by uh, Philip Nemo, and his interlocutor asks, in the face of the other, that's one of Levinas's, the face of the other, in the face of the other, you say there is an elevation, a height. The other is higher than I am. What do you mean by that? Levinas replies, the first word of the face when you see a face is, thou shalt not kill. And one thinks here the Buddhist precept that we must do no harm. Levinas says, it is an order. There is a commandment in the appearance of the face, as if a master spoke to me. However, at the same time, the face of the other is destitute. 
It is the poor for whom I can do all, and to whom I owe all. And again, one thinks here of Renu, Amida Buddha, who is, according to uh, Hiroyuki uh, Isuki, a compassionate figure who cannot abandon the suffering, discriminate against lowly, and so on, that I quoted earlier. I am he who finds the resources, Levinas continues. I, the subject, I, am he who finds the resources to respond to the call. But Nemo is interlocutor that challenges Levinas and asks, what is the tendency to say to you, yes, in certain cases you're right, the other is higher, but in other cases, to the contrary, the encounter with the other occurs in the mode of violence, of hate, of disdain. To which letting us respond in a manner that suggested that we're the primacy of other power over self-power, taiki over jidiki. To be sure. But I think that whatever the motivation which explains this inversion, that is, of putting yourself above the other, the analysis of the faith that Josiah just made with the mastery of the other in his poverty, with my submission and my wealth, is primary. That is, that the other is higher. It's presupposed in all human relationships. If it were not that, we would never even say before an open door, I pray you, monsieur. After you, sir. And he described his work, he says, it is an original after you, sir, that I have described in my work. My work is about why we open the door for the other. So ethics for letting us is demonstrated then through this common gesture of opening the door for another and saying, Après vous, monsieur. Après vous, madame. And this is precisely what happens at this extraordinary moment in Shakespeare's play as Lear would briefly ponder, entering the hovel first, says to the fool, In boy, go first. One thinks here not only of Levinas with his monsieur, but also of Renyo. Cannot abandon the discriminated against the defenseless, the child, the boy. And Lear's compassion now extends from the feeling of responsibility to the poor fool to all those who suffer poverty and to the, pro, pro, to the profound recognition that when he was king, he betrayed this responsibility. You houseless poverty, make it the end. I'll pray and I sleep. I'll sleep and then he kneels. Poor, naked, wretches, wheresoe'er you are, that by the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your roofs and window raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Oh, I have been too little thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayst shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. Lear at last 
recognizes his obligations to the poor. The imperial ego had forgotten the other. Self-power severed itself from other power, from the deep compassion of Amida Buddha. Now at last, ethics comes first. Take physic pomp. Purge yourself of pomp. The propping up of the ego through its attachment to status and power must purge itself. And the purging can only take place through an exposure, a denuding of the ego, an allowing of the ego to be vulnerable rather than defended, to feel and to participate, as it were, in the deep compassion of Amida Buddha. In Levinas' terms, the allegedly sovereign ego is paradoxically commanded to be exposed to the other, and this exposure translates into a commanding sense of responsibility impossible to shirk for the other. It is my obligation to give to the, the other, to the poor, to shake the superplus to them, and in, do, and in doing so, I show the heavens more just. Now, the play is set in pre-Christian England. Why is that? Rather than holding up, it seems to me, by counterexample, England's Christianity as a model of charity, in King Lear, Shakespeare is, I believe, suggesting that compassion is a deeply human capability that can erupt in any cultural or religious setting, including pre-Christian so-called pagan England. Indeed, is it possible to find characters from any religious or spiritual tradition more deeply ethical than Kent or Lear's daughter Cordelia, who lived before the creed of Christianity had ever been established? Has there ever been a literary character more filled with seemingly a seemingly Christian sense of forgiveness or a Buddhist sense of the deep, limitless compassion of Anita Buddha than Cordelia? So let's turn to Act 4 of the play as Lear, now mad with grief and suffering, is reunited with the one daughter he had so unjustly and inexplicably spurned. Like a Shin Buddhist on his way to enlightenment, Lear now sees that he has been, that he is a foolish being. In the previous scene, Lear has observed, we are born, when we are born, we cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. And he now tells Cordelia, I am a very foolish, fond old man. The word fond meant foolish in Shakespeare's day. Now, Cordelia has every reason to despise her father for what he's done. Not only has he deprived her through his ignorant selfishness of her rightful share of her inheritance, but he's empowered his two evil daughters to the point that both Lear and Cordelia are now in mortal danger, as is the whole kingdom. Just after their reunion, Cordelia sheds tears in response to seeing her father again. Lear asks Cordelia, do your tears wet? Yes, safe. I pray. Weep not. If you have poison for me, I will drink it. I know you do not love me. For your sisters have, as I do remember, done me wrong. He's a little in and out of it. You have some cause. They have not. To which Cordelia replies with four of the most compassionately moving syllables in the whole of English poetry, no cause, no cause. 
In the final act, Mary Cordelia is taken prisoners and almost are, are certainly doomed. Cordelia's concern, however, is not for herself, but for the other, for her father, who has so deeply wronged her. Cordelia first consoles herself through expressing her compassion for those who have suffered similar fates, and she then expresses her concern for her father. We are not the first who, with best meaning and his good intentions, have incurred the worst, have experienced the worst. For thee, oppressed king, I am cast down. For thee, oppressed king, I am cast down. Myself could else outfrown false fortune's frown. I'm upset because I'm concerned about you, not my own death. The other is in Cordelia's skin. And so at the end of the play is the other in Lear's. And here comes my title, Mother Power. Though he later vainly attempts to undo his command, Edmund, the bad, Edmund Edgar, the M in Edmund mean, the G in Edgar good. That's how you can remember that when you reread the play. <laughs> Edmund had ordered Cordelia's murder, and the earlier order is executed irreversibly. Lear is now crushed by his realization that he's responsible for Cordelia's death and that she is irreplaceable. There are no hints here in this pre-Christian setting of an afterlife. Lear is rather left with the stark reality of the finality of his dear daughter's death. I might have saved her. Now she's gone forever. Cordelia, the other, is now firmly in Lear's skin. At the beginning of the play, the king was driven by self-power. Lear is now overwhelmed by other power. He characterized himself as suffering earlier in the play from an attack of what was called in Shakespeare's play today, the mother. He is suffering from what was called the mother. Earlier in his uh, Lear, his disbelieving sorrow, how he's been treated by Regan and Goneril, left him out cold in the rain. He says, Oh, how this mother swells up toward my heart, hysterical patio, down climbing sorrow, thy elements below. How this mother swells up toward my mother. The mother, or hysterical passion, as the notes to a fine edition tell us, was a disease mainly of women that arose from the womb and took them with a choking in the throat. It was called patio hysterica, or in English, the mother or the suffocation of the mother. Lear actually has this disease called the mother, and it chokes him. Now, at this point in the play, Act 2, Lear rightly reviews this disease his mother as a terrifying threat to his life, to the sovereignty of his imperial self. He experiences the mother, maternity, as a terrifying threat. But these connotations are of the mother are going to shift dramatically. Now, in this last great work, Otherwise Than Being or Beyond Essence, great in French, Letting us liken the true self to the maternal self, 
to maternity itself. In contrast to the accepted notion, especially since the European Enlightenment, that the self is autonomous, sovereign, imperial, like Lear's at the beginning of the play, Leninoff argues that the experience of maternity more accurately signifies what it's like to be a self. For, this is the key, the mother cares more for the life of her child than for her own life. And you don't have to be a parent to experience that. Levinas is very clear, he uses this, but it, it, it goes beyond, uh, it's just an analogy to that experience. The other is in my womb, in my skin. And his thought this precisely how Lear's own death signifies at the end of the play, which I'm coming to right now. So Lear's compassion has grown enormously in the course of the play. After he is reunited with Cordelia at the end of the play and is filled with remorse over his treatment of her at the beginning, he sees his own wretched self as if it were another, as if he were himself the other. I should even die with pity to see another thus. If someone else was something like I am now, I would be consumed uh, with pity. And in fact, Leninus chose this quotation from Lear as his epigraph to his book, Humanism of the Other Human Being. But at this moment, at the moment of his death, Lear is not concerned at all with his own death, but with Cordelia. Lear is now as a compassionate Edgar had described himself in the previous act, and notice the gender notion of this adjective, pregnant to good pity. Pregnant to good pity. And so, here are Lear's last lines. As he is, by the way, holding Cordelia in his arms, a kind of reverse pieta, as if, and there's this sense that people thought maybe Shakespeare was even a Catholic, but it's actually true, it's actually true. Uh, so it's, 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 it's uh, Mary with, uh, with Christ in his arms. So in a sense, No, no, no life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life, and thou no breath at all? Oh, that's not no more. Never, 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 never. Pray you won't do this, buddy. politely asked Edgar, assuming it is that Edgar uh, addresses that he is addressing here, which is fine to assume, to undo this button, again, the mother, choking him. Undo the button below his collar from which Lear politely thanks him. Though Lear is dying, he's not thinking of his own death. He's rather hoping to see some signs of life on the lips of his beloved daughter Cordelia, some signs of life in the face of the other for whom he feels himself deeply and inescapably responsible to whom he is responding with a deep 
and finally fatal sense of almost limitless compassion.